1: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In A College Coach Conversation. As always, I am excited that you've joined us here today. And as always, I think we have a great show put together for you. We're we are um, going to be talking to all of those seniors out there today. Uh, I know that though it's past May 1, it's in fact May 17th, And you have hopefully deposited somewhere. You know where you're going to college next year. And hopefully you're still listening to the show because we still have good information to share with you. Uh, I know at this time, when I was a high school senior, my mom had started. She had a basket in my room and she was buying me multiples of the deodorant I like to use and a couple of bottles of shampoo and Washcloths and a couple of towels. And basically, every week for probably the second half of my senior year, she would buy some things and put it in that basket, um, in sort of getting me ready for the transition from living in her house to living on my own in dorms. And I was thinking of my mom this past weekend who is very much missed, and I will do the exact same thing for my son when it's time. Um, But in addition to those kinds of things, there are some other things that you want to be thinking about and taking care of over the next few months. And so we're going to actually devote two segments of today's show to talking about making that transition. But before we get to that, uh, we we do have stuff for those of you who are younger – Um, and parents of younger students, and we want to talk more today about distinguishing excellence. It's a term that we toss around um, when we talk about highly selective colleges and the process of being competitive at those colleges, and so we wanted to talk a little bit more about that today, and joining me for that is Zara Guerra, who is my colleague and also is a former admissions officer at MIT, Caltech, and Boston Conservatory. So based on my background at Penn and his at those schools, we certainly know uh, a thing or two about what constitutes a distinguishing excellence. Um, Welcome, Zaragoza. Thank you, Beth.
0: Glad to be here.
1: Absolutely. So let's jump right in and um, get to the first question, which for those who maybe have not listened to the show all that frequently or maybe didn't hear the episodes where we've talked about getting into a highly selective institution, what is a distinguishing excellence anyway?
2: Great question.
1: And I don't
2: think there's any one absolute answer. Um, it It is, it, it's something that you kind of, recognize over time. And uh, by that, I mean, it, it, it's something that, that happens organically with a student um, over time, where they uh, really start uh, demonstrating their particular excellence, their particular star quality uh, within a given field or multiple fields. And it's it's something that really showcases a student and and makes a, a reader of an application understand that this is someone who's going above and beyond what's expected, not just within the high school, but perhaps within their community, perhaps throughout the region. And it's not a matter of simply getting great grades or being the valedictorian of your school. It's taking what you've learned Uh, in the classroom, taking what you've learned outside of the classroom, whether it's a talent, and applying it in a way that your community, your overall community, recognizes. And they recognize it by making sure that, hey, are you going to be in the regional orchestra? We want you, and you're going to be first chair. Or oh, my goodness, you did such an incredible job with your research. We're going to honor you with such an award and recommend that you compete nationally uh, for uh, a, a title or that you are so accomplished in your athletic field that, hey, you might even make a <laughs> national <laughs> Olympic team or, or or garner some kind of national recognition. Um, and, and, and it's oftentimes not necessarily just one particular award or uh, one particular program uh, that's going to uh, garner you this distinguishing excellence. Sometimes it is, and and more often than not, it is an accumulation of these honors of this kind of recognition uh, from your community uh, that you kind of compile uh, mm-hmm. throughout your your years of high school. And, It it can be in one particular area or it can be in multiple areas.
1: Right. And I guess what I I would add to that is simply that for most students, if they have a distinguishing excellence, it tends to be in one area. So they tend to be what we call well lopsided in that Mm -hmm. their accomplishments and achievements are really usually in one area because it's hard, as anyone can imagine, to achieve significant recognition in more than one area, although it does happen. And I've had a couple of students who I would say had more than one distinguishing excellence. But typically speaking, generally, you're going to have one distinguishing excellence that a college can kind of point to. And that leads to my next question, which is, why is this important? Why does it matter at the kinds of colleges we're talking about, which would be the Ivies and Stanford and MIT and Caltech and similar institutions, maybe University of Chicago, I would throw in there, maybe Duke, um, why does mm-hmm. it matter? I think
2: it matters because when a school becomes that much more selective, when they're only admitting, you know, 5% of their applicants or 10% yeah. of their applicants, um, it, you know, it, it's, it, it becomes harder and harder for an admission officer to distinguish one student from the next because most of those students um, in such a pool, are going to have really great grades. They're going to have really great scores. Many of them are going to be valedictorians. There are many more valedictorians across the country than there are spaces at any of these schools. Um, And so when one is reading these applications and trying to make sense of, hey, who do we offer a space to? Um, and, And you're just that selective. Oftentimes you have to... Um, go for the ones in, who are going above and beyond um, the normal expectations within a high school, um, because those are the ones who are going to stand out on an application. And so, it matter for these schools when you're when you're talking about that level of selectivity. Um, it's it's not enough just to uh, uh, oftentimes. Uh, you know, garner the awards in the high school. Oftentimes it means, hey, really shining outside of that environment
3: uh, because there
2: are just not enough spaces uh, for those who are doing quite well in the the high school. And that doesn't necessarily mean I I, I should... You know, there there are other forms of distinguishing excellences, too. It's not necessarily just garnering these awards. I I think oftentimes it, it means really demonstrating how you have gone above and beyond the opportunities available to you. Because I've seen some distinguishing excellences that have been composed of a student who didn't have the means to Mm -hmm. participate in all of these incredible things. I've had some students who might have been homeless, and Mm -hmm. their distinguishing excellence was, hey, Despite the fact that I was homeless, I became the valedictorian of my high school, and I participated in research, and I uh, garnered these awards in one of the toughest high schools in New York City, while right. my mother and I took turns sleeping on the subway, okay? So right. that in and of itself could be a distinguishing excellence. It's, it's a matter of really shining and going above and beyond,
1: Right, right. In a way that you can really recognize in an application. And uh, we aren't actually going to talk about the how you translate it into an application this week. That's actually going to be a segment on our show next week. So if you're curious about that piece of it, um, you're going to want to tune in next week and get that. But um, I think that is all. You know, I would even sum up what you just said is, is basically if you're in an applicant pool with 50,000 other students, which some of the applicant pools at these schools are approaching those numbers, and they're ultimately only going to enroll a class of 1,500, 2,000, of, and those are on the larger side for some of the schools we're talking about, it's what makes you it, – what, it's what takes you from being competitive because you've got the grades and the test scores and the rigor to being compelling – and, um, and that is a really important thing. If you can't go from competitive to compelling, you're not going to go from applicant to admitted applicant. Um, all right. So if, for those of, uh, of our listeners who are thinking, okay, great, I understand what a distinguishing excellence is, and I think I understand why it's important, um, how do I figure out as a student, how do I figure out what I can do to develop a distinguishing excellence? Where's the first place that you would start? I
2: would probably start very early on in Mm. high school because it's not something that gets developed overnight, and it's not something that one can develop, you know, second semester of junior year and say, hey, I'm about to apply to these colleges. Let me get a distinguishing excellence. I think oftentimes it starts right after middle school in the sense that in middle school, you've, you know, figured out what you like doing to a certain degree, and then you go full force starting in high school. So if you figured out that you you love music, it's hard to, you know, garner a distinguishing excellence in piano if you just start taking up piano lessons in ninth grade or 10th grade or 11th grade. Yes, You probably will have had to have been taking lessons for quite a while. Okay? So think about those things early on that you've got a passion for or that you've got an interest in, I should say, that because those interests are, are later on going to turn into passions. And it helps to have a passion for this. It helps to to, to love doing this. Um, and I would, I, I, I really encourage students to to figure out when, when they've discovered that particular interest um, to think about how am I going to share this with others? So it's not For instance, we're talking about music. It's not just a matter of taking lessons and becoming a really good piano player or a really good violin player. It's a matter of uh, getting vetted for what you've been able to accomplish. And that could happen that you are earlier on not just becoming first chair at your school orchestra, but maybe you advance and audition for the regional orchestra. So, for instance, I've had a a student, you know, by the end of his four years of high school, he, you know, had become the first chair of the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. And he was also part of the state youth wind ensemble. And he spent a summer at the Tanglewood Institute. And he spent another summer at a conservatory learning how to compose with a composer. And he spent uh, plenty of times in concert halls across the world. Okay, so this isn't something that just happened overnight and wasn't something that just happened over his junior year. This is something that happened, you know, starting earlier on um, in life and then definitely uh, getting uh, a, a lot more momentum in high school mm-hmm. as he progressed through high school.
1: Right. And I, well, the one thing I would add there is that while, yes, I think most distinguishing excellence come from a passion or an interest that students have had for a while and that they've probably been working on at least as early as ninth grade. Um, it is possible that you may have actually been working towards a distinguishing excellence and not necessarily realize it. So for mm-hmm. those students who are a little bit older, I think a piece of advice that I would have is to really just kind of look and see, well, what, what am I involved in? Is there an area that I have already received awards or accolations or I've already in some way distinguished myself and if so that is the area that I would look to kind of augment a little bit and mm-hmm. I, I was thinking about this today um, I there was a segment on our local news show about uh, a teacher had a stroke in um, in the classroom and three students kind of leapt to his aid and basically saved his life as a result of recognizing that that's what was going on. He was having a stroke. They called the police. They got another teacher in there. And because they acted and thought quickly, they were able to save his life. And I was thinking, I could just imagine that student and his parents coming into my office in a year and saying, wow, he wants to write his essay about this. And my question would always have been, that is phenomenal. What happened as a result of this? And that's Mm -hmm. sometimes where distinguishing excellence can start is with a moment with a, wow, that was really amazing what I did. And as a result of that, now I'm really fascinated by emergency medicine and I I became an EMT or I decided that everyone needs to know how to recognize the signs of stroke. So I created a campaign within my school that I then um, farmed out to other schools in our district. And then we adopted a statewide stroke awareness program and i was behind it all as a result of doing of that one moment where i recognized the signs of a stroke or mm-hmm. i realized that maybe i wasn't making the most of my time as a student and maybe i needed to be better than i was and so i you know turned a corner in my life and and it's it's what you do with that passion, and you may have already been doing something interesting with it, and if so, you just want to find other ways to do even more interesting things. So maybe you're already playing uh, in the orchestra, and you've already achieved heights at your high school, but you hadn't thought about doing a summer program in music. Well, it's not too late to do that, and that may then become um, your distinguishing excellence by the time you um, you are applying mm-hmm. to college. Um mm-hmm. And, okay, and I,
2: think, so, I think oftentimes it is, you know, taking these interests and, and, and making these informed decisions as you, as you go along the way when you, when you kind of discover, hey, I, I kind of like that. And, and that impacts, you know, the kind of things that I end up doing throughout high school. So, for instance, you know, if you love soccer. Okay. And you're trying to figure out okay, I've I've got this really strong interest in soccer. It's not necessarily that you're going to become a national <laughs> player. Right. It could sometimes be that you are figuring out or how how can I develop other skill sets or how can I shine within this particular uh, love of soccer in other ways besides maybe just my high school team? Maybe you go for a club sport, you know, perhaps, and maybe you uh, decide, hey, I'm going to take a leadership position. I'm going to become captain of the team or I'm going to share my love with the community, my love of soccer with the community. I'm going to coach a uh, soccer team at the Boys and Girls Club. Okay, so you're developing all of these different skill sets, all within this particular interest, all within this particular passion. And oftentimes that can be a distinguishing excellence. It might not necessarily be that you are the number one soccer player in the right. country. It's just that you are shining in the sense that you're sharing this love of soccer with, in so many ways and with so many people.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, Zaragoza, thank you so much for joining me today. The conversation about distinguishing excellence, we're sort of just beginning it. We're going to follow through on that in uh, next week's show. So if that's interesting to you, definitely turn it, tune in. We also, um, I wrote a blog series for the Huffington Post last year. Uh, it's an eight or nine part about uh, who gets into Harvard. And there's a whole blog about Uh, Distinguishing Excellence and what constitutes it And so if you're interested in that uh, Just Google me, Elizabeth Heaton uh, Huffington Post And uh, you should get a link to at least one of those articles And that will in turn link you to The rest of them Uh, We are coming back in just a minute And we're going to be talking about making the transition From college, or from high school To college, so don't go away
3: visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
0: you are listening to getting in a college coach conversation to reach elizabeth heaton or her guest today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about developing a distinguishing excellence, and now we're talking about those of you who've already done all of this, you're into college, and you're going to be making the transition from high school to college this year, we have a ton of stuff that we want to cover, and with me to help with all of this are two of my colleagues. Um, the first is Jan Combs, who's a former financial aid officer at Boston University and Harvard Graduate School of Education, and the second is Tova Tolman, who was with me maybe last week or very recently, who is a former admissions officer at Fordham, Barnard, and Montclair State Colleges. So welcome, Jan and Tova. Thanks, Thank you. Hello. Hello. So we're going to jump right in because there's so much stuff we want to talk about today. So let's start with something that is related to academics, um, records, things like that. So what is the procedure for getting the transcript, the high school transcript to the college? Uh, That... I'll take that one, Beth. Um, That
4: is actually, believe it or not, more the guidance counselor's job than the student, but the student's responsibility to make sure it happens. So step one, let your guidance counselor know which college you picked. And then (laughs) um, step two, look to see what the college has sent in terms of requesting the specific form. If they were using Common App, chances are they have a very specific final transcript form um, that they're going to send out and ask the guidance counselor to complete. And a lot of high schools are going to kind of do this automatically once they enter in uh, to what college you plan to enroll, especially if they are a Naviance high school. Uh, But really, once you have confirmed with your guidance counselor, you know where you're going and you follow up with the college uh, to see what forms they request, it's a pretty easy process. Uh, But it's essential. They're not going to let you enroll until they confirm you have, in fact, completed high school at the level at which that
1: they believe that you had uh, previously and that you have, in fact, graduated. Got it. Okay, perfect. And so continuing on that theme, Tova, what about AP courses and exam scores? Uh, How do you go about getting credit for those now that you've settled on the school that you're going to be attending?
4: Yeah, and that's a good thing to do, because just like you said, you can actually get college credit for those exams if you scored high enough, depending on what the school awards. Uh, The main thing that has to happen is you have to officially send the scores from College Board. And if you believe you already did that, you still want to double-check with college, because it might have only been included in your admission application, and AP scores actually aren't needed in that process. They're needed by the registrar's office of your college. So you'll have to, again, request from College Board to have them sent. And then as for getting credit, you'll need to check on the college for what sort of chart or rubric they provide for what score on what exam gives you what kind of credit or perhaps course exemption or requirement uh, satisfaction. Every school is going to be a little bit different for every different exam to figure out what exactly is going to be awarded. But you have to send the scores officially from College Board.
1: All right, cool. We're gonna, Jan, I have a couple for you. Well, um, start with probably the one on everyone's mind, which is how do we get that first college bill, or when do we get it, and when is it due? <laughs>
5: Or important information to be aware of. So with, with regard to the billing timetable, the student is actually the one who will get the bill. And I know that surprises a lot of parents, but just be prepared. The bill will go directly to the student's attention. Sometimes it comes in the mail, but likely it will go either via the student's email or to the student's portal. They'll have to log in and check out their student account and then access their first bill there. As far as timing goes... The fall semester bill usually will come out either very late in June or during that first week of July, and then it will be due at some point in August. And then that second semester bill will come out in December and due in January. Um, so that's kind of the, the general timing. And then just so families are aware, that, that first fall bill will show all of the direct bill charges, so that first half of tuition and fees and room and board, if they're living on campus. Mm-hmm. And then that bill will also list any aid sources that they've been offered, so student loan, for example, grants and scholarships specifically, and the amounts of those will be deducted as anticipated credits. And then, of course, families will see that bottom line that they owe for that First
1: semester. Got it. Okay. So going back to you, Tova. What about you've paid your bill? You're on campus. Mm. What? How do you know what courses to register for? Is there uh, something that every college does? Do you meet with an advisor before you do that? How does that piece work?
4: Oh, that I wish they every college required you to meet <laughs> with an advisor before that happens. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. I've worked at. Three, Well, in admissions, three, but I've really been at five different colleges, and actually, it was done four different ways at the five different schools. Uh, in terms of, of how to go about registering, there are, I think, two main schools of thought. One is that the college takes care of it through your very first semester, and that the other is, hey, it's your job. You're a college student. You register. For the former, when it's a college that takes care of it, they still recognize that you're college students, and they want you to be picking your classes. It's more sort of a recognition of, all right, it's a little bit intimidating. There's a lot to go- there's a lot to figure out. There are a lot of requirements to satisfy. We have this huge course catalog with hundreds, if not sometimes thousands, of classes being offered. How do we know even where to begin? And they sometimes kind of get you set with that first semester uh, when it's you and entirely on your own. I I highly recommend seeking out an advisor, even if it's not a requirement, because I assure you that there is someone in the advising office, if you're not assigned a specific advisor, that would love to help you through this process. And in some schools, this happens over the summer at orientation, perhaps. Other schools, orientation doesn't happen until you actually move in, and the registration process happens sort of remotely from, from your home, you do it online. Uh, A good rule of thumb, though, is to check in with someone before you start registering for so you do know what to do and then balance it out a little bit with uh, some requirements and perhaps dabbling in what you think you might want to major in. But I know we could do an entire segment on (laughs) what to register for your first semester.
1: We could. Maybe we should. That's a great idea. I will uh, float it to Lauren. (laughs) Um, when we're thinking about upcoming segments, all right, I'm going to bounce to a slightly different topic. And Jan, this question is for you. Is there anything that we need to be thinking about or that parents need to be thinking about related to the health needs of a student, um, any forms that the colleges need? And I do think that this can be a big issue. Kids are away from home for the first time. Uh, so what, what can you share with us about this piece?
5: Sure, happy to. In fact, I just went through this myself, having a, a recent uh, a, a son uh, enter college. There's actually a lot to know with, with, with regard to health, both from logistical as well as practical considerations. So the first is just required health forms. And so students, all students at all colleges will need a current physical um, on file. So that's real important to schedule that physical with a child's primary care physician. Make sure that you have have downloaded all of the required health forms from the college website and present those to their pediatrician or physician um, when they have their physical. And that way they can certainly... You know, complete those forms. Now the important thing to know about this is to follow the college's process. Some colleges will allow you to send in the medical forms from the pediatrician, but some of them, like my son's school, he actually had to take a picture of his immunization form and upload it, and then he had to hand answer the dates that he had all of his shots over time, and their process was completely online. But rest assured, regardless of whether they're mailing it in or it's all online, they will have to have that physical on file as well as the related um, immunization records as well. And then that, that deadline is usually in July, so kind of keep that in mind as you work backwards to set up those doctor's appointments. The other health thing that's important to know is just really health insurance in general. Certainly, all colleges are required to know that families, you know, have health, health insurance for their child, and so they will automatically bill you automatically for health insurance and so if you have your own that's terrific but in order to get that health insurance fee taken off the bill it's real important that you complete the health insurance waiver form usually again by July at some point so that the college knows that the student is insured and then can um, take off that fee from from their student billing account so the waiver form is right online they can complete it they need to do it every single year and share the information about the health provider that they do have for their child. So it's another important thing to take care of this summer. See, the other thing i like to mention, is, I know this, this can be very stressful as your child heads off to college, but just thinking about, you know, medical treatment authorizations in general. Once your child is 18 or enrolled in a post-secondary education, those Family privacy laws kind of kick in, and information that we as parents used to have is really no longer available to us once our Mm -hmm. child um, turns 18 or enrolls in college. So none of us want to think about those what-if scenarios. You know, what if your child gets hurt in a skiing accident or playing football or gets a terrible uh, illness? you need to have forms on file in the event that you could, number one, speak to a medical professional, and number two, make treatment decisions on their behalf. So I encourage families to take care of those medical treatment authorizations in advance, have a health proxy form completed and signed by your child and witnessed so you have that on file, as well as those general FERPA documents that you'll have to sign at the college as well. So real important, I did this for my son. I keep the hard copies at home, and I also keep a copy on my phone just in case I ever needed to step in on his behalf.
1: Right, you don't want to be doing it at the last minute. Sorry, (laughs) I was just saying you don't want to be doing that at the last minute.
5: Absolutely not. It takes some time because it does have to be witnessed. So Mm -hmm. another thing to plan ahead about.
1: Right. It's a whole, basically, it's a whole job. like
5: summer camp
4: forms for my kids are really no big deal Mm -hmm. after all.
1: Exactly. It isn't. I was thinking all I have to do for my son to go to um, high school or in previous schools is just, you know, go to the doctor, make sure his immunizations are (laughs) are up to date, right? It's a, it's a bigger thing when you send them off into the world. Um, I have another question for you, Tova, and, and this one is related. You mentioned it in passing, um, orientation. Should should my child attend orientation? Sometimes it's during the summer. Sometimes it's right when students arrive on campus. What would be beneficial about that, especially if maybe you were thinking, oh, we've already visited the school three times. We don't need to go back for one more weekend before uh, he or she starts.
2: <laughs>
4: yes. No. That's not true. I I will take away your, I've listened to the college coach getting in podcast card if you think your kid does not need to go to orientation. (laughs) I mandate everyone to attend orientation. And a lot of colleges do expect it or make it a requirement. Um, And, again, I think there are two main uh, kinds or schools of thought. uh, And I think both are equally common. One is pick one day over the summer and there are multiple actions to choose from. And it's just a day program where there are all kinds of different offices available. That's where you register for classes. Uh, that's when you complete some of these forms. That's where you get a, a tour, perhaps, to see where this is happening, where that's happening. And you take care of everything that needs to happen. And in those situations, it's a bit more transactional and uh, logistics focused The other kind of orientation is uh, uh entirely different it's it's uh none of that happens over the summer and uh, other than some of the forms that maybe you are completing behind the scenes and this is the kind of orientation where you arrive maybe three days four days before school begins uh, you move in and it's only for first years maybe they have a separate orientation going on for transfer students and it's really meant to have a chunk of time to acclimate you to the campus to the community uh, to the student body, to feel like you're part of something, all before classes even begin. And I think both forms are valuable. Often if the school only has the summer orientation kind, they'll still probably have one day of uh, sort of fun before school begins. And I think that the value to these kinds of programs is almost unmeasurable, both, again, from the logistical standpoint of uh, making sure you're set, good to go, met with an advisor, Classes are all set in terms of what you're registered for, but also of the settling in. I mean, if we think of our basic hierarchy of needs, especially in student development theory of uh, where will I eat? Where will I sleep? Uh, How are these basic things going to take place? I I can't really worry about these higher level issues of like learning (laughs) until (laughs) I have these other very basic needs met. And I think that that is such a valuable part of orientation, just feeling oriented, feeling like I know what's going on. I know where to go. I know where the things are happening. And it's not just about tours, but really finding a place for yourself, meeting some of your best friends, probably that might end up sticking with you for the next four years. Um, So I highly Highly recommend it, and I would like to mandate it for every listener of
1: our podcast. The the only thing I would add, and then we're going to take a really quick break, and and we'll be right back to talk about more of this, but my stepson, who tended to be maybe a little bit shy but um, was certainly ready to go off to college, it felt like orientation really was – such a valuable thing for him and feeling like, okay, this is where I'm going to be and and uh, getting to know some students and it was just pretty cool to watch. And there were some stuff for parents if they wanted to mm-hmm. do it. I We opted not to, but um, I know yeah. that there were a lot of parents who were feeling probably very stressed about sending their kids off. So that's the other interesting thing is that they do a lot of things to support parents um, with yeah. orientation now as well. Okay, we're going to be right back uh so do not go away and we're going to be talking more about transitions uh when we return
0: think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7
3: So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
0: Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio?
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
1: Okay, we're back and we're ready to jump right back into the things you need to know to make the transition from high school to college. Jan, I am coming right back to you with uh, probably a big question and that is around how do you both – understand how much money your student is going to need for the year and also help the student manage money while he or she is at college. And maybe there are students for whom that the question isn't even, no one's giving me any money. How do I? Uh, we're talking next week about finding, um, finding a summer job. So actually, let's stick with that. Mm-hmm. How do you manage your money when you're at college? And as a parent, how do you help with that?
5: Sure. So there's definitely a lot to know kind of, you know, in that, money realm when we're thinking about preparing our kids for college. And so certainly, you know, how much do they need for the year? You know, how can they manage the money while on campus? And what are the systems available for them? So I can certainly touch on that a little bit. Certainly, you know, how to help your kids manage the money when they're at college, really, they're going to need some sort of banking service for the most part. Um, You know, most kids will need to think about banking and making payments to others. And there's definitely a lot of ways of approaching this. I always encourage kids, you know, Tova talked a lot about orientation, so when the kids are on campus for that mandated orientation, um, make sure Mm -hmm. they're checking out what ATMs are available right on campus or what other banking options are available close by. That gives kids, you know, super easy access to getting money and um, being able to, you know, transfer money to others for sure. Uh, But just be sure, uh, from a finance person, I always like to mention that make sure that the ATM on campus is not charging the student large charge fees or, you know, monthly charges. Um, so, you know, check out things while you're on campus. The other way way to do it is I know some parents have said to me that they're really nervous about their, you know, their child having a debit card, for example. I completely understand that. So what I did was I, I set up a, a no fee checking account for my child with a debit card attached to it. And then that, of course, was attached to my main banking account. So I set my child loose with his debit card that he could use at the ATM on campus. But I only put a certain amount in that checking account that I had for him. And that way I could monitor it. And then as he needed money, I would transfer it over. So it really allowed him to manage his money by using that debit account, but without a huge risk of him having having the entire amount for the entire year. So that's one way of approaching it. And then, of course, kids can, you know, send money to, to others many ways through all of the different apps that are available today, whether it's PayPal or, or Venmo or Apple Pay or Google Wallet or one of the other ones. They have ability to use that, uh, those apps to, to transfer money to others as necessary. And then, of course, budgeting, that's, that's a big part of it. When we're talking about money, I, I always like setting up a budget with your child before they leave. You know, as to what they need, in, in some cases, might depend on the child, you know, where, they, where they're living, where the college is. Is it is really expensive? Is it an urban environment where things might be a little bit more expensive than, than at other locations? You can certainly utilize the financial aid office. We'll have a standard cost of attendance. Budget each year set up, and it's published right on their website, and they'll give you an allocation of what you should estimate for personal expenses, so you can utilize that amount. Most colleges are going to have a personal expense allocation of around three thousand to thirty five hundred for the year. Um, that is essentially what my son took with him at the beginning of his first year, and you know that was for him to use for his ski pass or his bus tickets if he was visiting a friend or the movies, things of that nature and I set up with him a monthly budget and said, this is what you have for the year, and that's what you need to do. So um, use that cost of attendance guide as a, a good solid estimate, or, you know, between 3000 and 4000 is roughly what someone will need over the course of the year. And then, of course, one other thing about kind of money related to being on campus is many colleges will have a campus card system in place. Essentially, it's a cash card system where you can put money in your student's account. And they do use it like a debit card, but it's for things on campus, maybe in the bookstore, maybe purchasing sporting event tickets or the laundry machines or printing services. And typically, a couple hundred dollars is sufficient on that card for the year to help them do their laundry and print their papers out and really- Related, you know, campus-based things. So those are the main things that I would think about um, with regard to money um, as you plan, you know, plan moving forward with your child.
1: Yep. I think all really great suggestions, and I will share a personal story. I went abroad um, for to Paris for my junior year of college. I was meant to stay for the full year, and every year I would earn money over the summer to use as spending money during the year. And I may or may not, if my father listens to this show, this never happened, but I may have gone <laughs> through my year's <laughs> worth of money. In the four months that I was in Paris before I decided to come home a semester early, and then really struggled for the second semester. So these are well, easy to do in tiles. Paris I think. Huh? Yeah, I mean, easy I probably to do spent in Paris, it in the right? yeah, exactly. I spent it in the right place, but it still it still haunts me um, yeah, that sure. that happened. So okay, Tova, on to you. Um, a big question, I think, is around. W- Academic support, we don't know at this point. Ideally, um, students are heading off to schools where they are um, going to be a fit in every way, right? Academically, socially. um, But it it can be helpful to plan ahead in case a student is running into challenges dealing with the transition between high school and college where the expectations might be very different, where they certainly have much more free time, and that can be challenging in and of itself. What, if anything, can families do to prepare for that element of it? I think one of the main
4: differences uh, and and something that's worthwhile to have a conversation
1: in your family
4: about is no one is going to come knock on your student's door and say, hey, are you having a problem? Uh, It is entirely up to your student to be their own self-advocate. If they are starting to feel that, oh, goodness, I'm falling behind in this class or I'm not entirely sure what the professor was just talking about for the last hour and a half or they get their first paper back and, you know, they've previously been a straight-A student and all of a sudden they have a C- minus on this paper and, more importantly, they have no idea why, uh, they, they, they should know and take comfort in that there are so many different resources available. But again, it's up for the student to take advantage of those and be their own self-advocate. Uh, number one, your professor, your student's professor, is likely going to be required to have office hours. There's going to be a set time every week, maybe twice a week, where they will be physically in their office, happy to chat with your student. Encourage your student to go, even if they don't have a problem and ideally before perhaps even just get to know you I really enjoyed your lecture this week and I just wanted to say hi and introduce myself because I'm worried later on in the semester I might have trouble and now your face I'm not scared to go talk to so remember whether they already are in trouble or if they just want to be proactive to take advantage of their professor's office hours. A lot of colleges are also gonna have other resource centers um, that are available to all students, regardless of of their academic prowess and background. Uh, Some are called math centers. I'd say that's pretty common, a a math help room where you can go in, drop in, whether it's gonna be calculus based or another form of math, uh, regular hours. Usually they're student run, upperclassmen, they're free, and you can drop in at any time. Uh, Similarly, a lot of colleges also have free writing centers for students, where, again, student-run, and that's actually another great part-time job for those of you who have great uh, writers and and you're thinking about what Jan just said, where can my student earn some extra money? Uh, Writing centers are a place where your student can bring in their paper, Sometimes they'll allow any stage. maybe it's just an outline and they want some help brainstorming, or it's that situation where they got a C- and they're really not sure why and they want to talk through that paper with someone to get some ideas of how to, how to improve and how to grow and get a lot of editing help so that they can learn and make it better. Um, and then also, it's very important to know that every college is going to have some element of disability services. So maybe your student has a documented learning disability, but they decided, you know what, I don't want any accommodations in college. I want to give it, my, uh, give it my best shot on my own. I don't need any help. And then they realized, shoot, that was a mistake. Check in with the Office of Disability Services to find out what accommodations they might be able to provide in terms of note takers, uh, preferential seating, maybe neutral test sites for those who have test anxiety, all kinds of different resources available there. And if you think that this is gonna be something that's gonna come up, if perhaps, and if we're going at this proactively, your student maybe is worried they're gonna struggle, Get registered with that Office of Disability Services already this summer because it's much easier to add something later if they already have that paper trail in place, they're already documented, because they have so many resources available. The moral of the story here is there's plenty to do and there's plenty available for help, but your student is going to need to actually raise their hand and
1: ask for it and go seek it out. And. Absolutely. The smaller schools, one of the things that you look for in the smaller school is that maybe someone is paying a little bit more attention. But even in those Mm. environments, I think it's really important um, to arm your student with the idea that you are you're kind of on your own here. And it's up to you to go and and as a parent you can help with this. But this is there is no time like this one to really start encouraging your students' independence because the The next step after college is likely going to be a job, and you cannot help them with that piece either. So it's time to start cutting the cords. Uh, Okay, Jan, I have one for you, and this is, um, and I know you have recently gone through this. Um, Now it's almost old hat for you, but um, it's probably still fresh in your mind, and that is, what do you need to think about related to the actual move-in day?
5: Actually, lots to think about. And, again, the more you can plan ahead, I think the smoother that actual move-in day will actually go. So certainly you want your child to reach out to their roommate or roommates um, and coordinate shared items with them. Certainly you don't need, you know, three TVs and two refrigerators and four microwaves. It's just not necessary. There's not enough room. So have your child, you know, in advance, contact their roommate, decide who's bringing what so they can coordinate um, Um, and and go from there. There are a lot of campus supply companies that typically work with a lot of colleges uh, and of course uh, Bed Bath and Beyond also does. So you can order things online if that's easier for you and they just have them delivered right to campus. So it makes it very easy. Less schlepping and lugging for you. Um, you know, Place your order and have everything sent directly to campus. It will all be labeled um, when you get there. So definitely contacting the roommate and coordinating is pretty key. And then of course just really going through a thorough packing list. Um, there's Packing lists um, usually on the residential life uh, webpage at the college, and they'll give you a good sense of what the students should think about packing. So kids should uh, check that out as well. Um, certainly bedding will be important, uh, clothing, if your child is uh, going to college in a different climate than you're used to, you want to make sure you're accounting for all seasons, if they're used to being um, in a warm climate and then all of a sudden they're heading to New England, you want to make sure you're setting those uh, coats and boots and mittens and hats and scarves and all that good stuff. So thinking about climate and clothing and the, and the needs from that perspective as well. And then, of course, books and supplies. Most students, you know, as Tova had mentioned, a lot of them will register for courses at orientation, so they should have a handle on the courses that they're scheduled for, and they can take care of ordering their books. They can either do so through the actual um, college website, bookstore website, um, or they can look further if they want to price books and maybe find things for a little bit cheaper. They can go to Amazon or Chegg or some of the other um, discounted bookstores as well. But certainly having their books either ordered um, and waiting for them either at the school or shipped to home and then and then brought up, that's pretty key to have that done. You know, oftentimes when kids move in, they're going to start uh, classes within a day or two later, so you want to make sure they have enough books and supplies on hand to get started Um, I will say, though, try not to overpack. You can go to extremes. I tended to do that the first time I I brought my son in. I think I packed enough school supplies for the next four years, and he simply just did not need all of them. He said, Mom, why are you packing all these binders and notebooks? I have a laptop. Um, So coordinate with your student. You know, see what their work habits are. See what they really need. Of course, you want to pack enough, but you don't want to overpack because dorm rooms are only so big. Right, and in theory,
3: he's going to come
1: home, right? He's in theory, he's going to come home. So, uh, yes. you know, if he needs more, he can always pick yes. that up at, at Thanksgiving or something like that. Absolutely, so I, they I come home here and there. And they could
5: pick up what they need, of course. Yep,
1: exactly. So we have one more minute, and was there anything else you wanted to add on on that? Because uh, I know I kind of got in the way of what, something else you were going to say.
5: As far as planning. Um, no, I think we, we, that was, you know, hopefully good, good coverage of ideas to think about when you're, you know, related to, to moving on campus. Um, just, you know, real quick, um, I, I guess if I had to give you a couple tips to, to close with would be just to take care of all the logistical tasks that, that need to be done this summer, um, plan for the student finances, um, and if that's all set in place, things tend to go a little bit smoother once your child is actually on campus.
1: Wonderful. Jan, thank you so much. Tova, thank you so much. Um, And thanks to Zaragoza, who was a guest for our first segment. Next week, Sally is hosting. We're going to be talking more about uh, distinguishing excellence, namely how to get it into your application in the most impactful way. We're going to be talking about applying for campus jobs, and in office hours, we're going to talk about getting started on an activity list and or resume for your applications. Um, We have lots of free ways to interact with College Coach, including this podcast, but also our blog at blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.